Hello and welcome to this extract from my conversation with Eddie Jordan for the Irishman Abroad podcast. My name is Jarlath Regan. I'm your host. We've been creating this show for the last seven, maybe eight years. And for most of that time, I've been chasing Eddie Jordan in the hope that he would have this conversation with me. Well, we got there this week. Eddie Jordan is on the show. Thanks to our researcher, John Marr, for finding a way of getting to Eddie and persuading him to do this conversation. To hear the entire conversation, head over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. A couple of clicks later, you'll have access to our full back catalogue. That's hundreds of hours of conversations with sporting legends, political uh, figures, musicians, uh, writers, you name it. Everyone's been on there. The archive is hundreds of episodes and includes our spin-off series, Irishman in America with Marion McKeown, which has been extraordinary over the last six months. And of course, our running podcast with Sonia O'Sullivan on a Tuesday, Irishman running abroad. Well, in that podcast, I'm attempting to run 2000 kilometers in the space of 12 months in aid of our chosen charity partner, Jigsaw.ie, an incredible Irish charity aiming to equip young people in Ireland with the mental health skills they'll need to survive this pandemic and life itself. Not everyone has people to lean on, particularly young people. They need access to content, services, phone lines and people who can help them with the difficult questions through this, the hard times. Chigso.ie have been saving lives across this pandemic. If you can afford to kick in some money over there at jigsaw.ie or support the Irishman Running Abroad Challenge at idonate.ie. Well, Eddie Jordan doesn't really need much of an introduction. He is a legend of Irish sport, the former motorsport team boss, businessman and television personality. He's just an extraordinary individual who started life at Bank of Ireland, went on to win the karting championship of Ireland in 1971, moved to Formula Ford in 1974. And then, of course, went on to found the Jordan Grand Prix Formula One constructor team. It's an extraordinary story. That 1991 to 2005 run, what he did there, competing with the big boys, taking chances and bringing that kind of rock and roll attitude to a sport that was closed off from that idea is the stuff of legend. If you're a fan of the sport, you won't need this introduction. He's an extraordinary individual and this is one hell of a chat. Again, as I said, to hear the full thing, come on over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad and you'll get access to the entire hour-long conversation and everything we've done up to now. But for now, sit back, relax and enjoy the Eddie Jordan episode of An Irishman Abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a f***ing job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Three 
Eddie Jordan, it's fantastic to have you on Irishman Abroad at last. I think I've spent seven years uh, chasing you down. You're an exceptionally busy man. I've sent emails, all sorts. In fact, I felt a little bit like yourself over the years trying to get this deal done. But we got it over the line today because of your uh, charity, Amber. Can you tell people a little bit about Amber in case they're not aware? Well, I started some time ago with much bigger charities and I decided that, you know, I wanted to make a meaningful contribution to something that I felt in touch with. I felt that it could have just have been so easily have been me or any of my friends. Uh, and it basically it's about 16 year olds or thereabouts. And there's no limit now. It was a limit. It's 20. It's now 25 in terms of age groups. It's about people who who gets either abused at home, abused at school, sexually, physically, others who fell by the wayside either with solvents or drink or alcohol or drugs and various types of drugs, harder drugs, softer drugs, doesn't matter. Then they became outcasts, lived outside the home and and, um, lived rough. And um, a lot of them died, unfortunately. And the ones that we were able to bring, we set up a home a good friend of mine just bought a home. He bought the Priory, what was sort of well known for rehabilitation of well-off drug dealers and drug um, musicians and, and superstars and various things. Anyway, that was no longer of um, important to those people and they made it easy for us to buy this home. And that has now gone to four major homes throughout the UK and we're probably looking at enlarging it through hopefully one to Ireland very soon, I hope, and another one to Scotland. It's about giving young kids a chance to find themselves. It's it's a tough love. By that, I mean they have to be part of the home. They have to declare at the very beginning that that, that they want to to get off uh, whatever they've been on to find themselves to be better people to contribute to mankind and, and to do the proper thing. Um, so when in these houses, some group look after the garden, some other do the maintenance in the house, some others do the cooking. So it's a it's a, a culmination of a groups of people and, and those particular jobs or errands, they change on a weekly basis. So you, you, you don't get bored and you've got other comrades and you've got other people in the set with you that are hopefully trying to help you. To, to find a solution to it. You know, it's an extraordinary charity and I honestly, I've been reading up around it in preparation for our conversation today. Our own chosen charity partner on the podcast here is Jigsaw.ie, which isn't a million miles away because both are focused on equipping. It's not about anything other than facilitating the future for young people, giving them a chance to get the skills and the mindset they need to excel beyond this. Now, obviously, that's something that speaks to me. I've talked about this on the show, but it's obviously something that speaks to you. Do you often think about that, that the upbringing that you had as luxurious as both of our upbringings were, relatively speaking, compared to these people that you're referring to. Do you ever think that thing of there but for the grace of God go I? You know, I spent maybe 15 years and and the the Jordan team was closely aligned to Click, which was another kids charity. But that was slightly different because those people were ill. And I felt in some ways it was a responsibility of government to look after those. They were kids with cancer and, and, you know, horrific 
stories there as well with families and that. This is different because no one reaches out to these kids. And so we go to the police and we go to the hospitals and we say, look, if there is somebody on the street who are really in difficulty and that we could be help. So they often refer them to us. Where I think Amber works really well and Jigsaw seems to be aligned to that, that we make after the first three, four months, we do obviously analyze how the child or the person is improving or not, if they're making a contribution to the welfare of the home. And then we will go used to anyway. We had huge success with uh, the army, the British army locally took lots of our, our kids, male and female, and um, then the police and jobs like that. Unfortunately, those type of jobs have semi-stopped at the moment. So when we did have about 85% uh, success rate of those children after six months or maybe a touch longer, um, they would find occupation and come back and then help the charity. It's a tougher job now, as we all know, because obviously demands for occupation, demands for welfare, demands for all sorts of things is much more excruciating to find the levels that makes it compatible for these people to come and and, and find proper work going forward. Yeah, I mean, every discussion that I have now has to be through the lens of what the world is experiencing right now. And, you know, I, I do think that we don't know what problems lie ahead here for these vulnerable people specifically. And it's obviously harder than to make your case for your your group or your charity, because there's, as you say, there's so many demands on everyone and so many people have so little to to throw around after all that stressful period in your life in Formula One which I've heard you describe many times as you know, just massive stress all the time when compared to, you know, the fun and the, the ladder of getting to that point. Was it ambition of yours then to go to use this ability and this skill to negotiate deals to to pay it forward? Um, you know, uh, this is something that you, you sometimes you're born lucky or you are lucky or you, you have a set of um, dealt a set of cards in, in your hand and, and, and you use those cards the best you can. Some people um, get a royal flush, some people get a full house, some people get nothing, and, and but they have to work with them or whatever it is. So no one person, and the reason why, just coming back finally about Amber, you know, the reason why I'm so into this charity is because it could have been me so easily because you know when you're 16 17 18 at school you weren't a particularly great student you started on the drink and then there was the cigarettes and then there was the joints and then there was this that and the other and and, and luckily i came from a very stable home and um my parents used to watch over me because they were aware that this kind of thing was going on uh, with other people either in the school that i was with or other associates so from that point of view yes i was lucky and the hand i was given coming back to your question now is that i always felt that i was a really much better negotiator than i ever was an academic and um, i have a, a very strong opinion on, on two words one is clever and the other is smart and you must never get them confused because a clever person invariably is not a smart person and a smart person invariably is not a, a clever <laughs> person and i come down probably um closer to the smarter side and um, because clever 
academics, university, high qualifications, this, that and the other, um, evaded me because I was always busy trying to uh, do my thing, which always entailed out and about and ducking and diving and stuff. was never sitting at home, trawling through great manuals and, and books of great fame and and reading and trying to enlarge my my um, basis of intelligence in that way. So um, I, I was different. I went to Sing Street. Uh, I got pretty much battered at school because, you know, I, I was probably, nobody knew what this being dyslexic was then. It was just that you were just a bit thick. And um, so I got plenty of boxes um, and plenty of slaps, but it did me no harm. And I have to say that um, Sing Street was a particularly good uh, school for me because it, it, it dragged me just about through into leaving certain, reasonable leaving certain, and then gave me the opportunity to, even though I didn't particularly want to do it, but my parents felt it was the right thing that I should join the bank, and 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 I did, and you know in many respects uh, that was the kickstart because had I not got the bank. Uh, I wouldn't have had the money that I've been able to need uh, to buy a cart and to start cart racing and then doing other things, selling carpets and, and, and selling cars on the side of the street on a regular basis. And so those sort of things, it came to me naturally. I'm a hustler by nature. I think I always was and I probably will always be. Well, the the bank chapter, if we were to refer to it as that, is... It's now it's now kind of the stuff of legend. I mean, working in the car loans department and also selling cars from the car park to people who are coming in for for loans. But before we get to that, I just wanted to pick up on one thing you said there about how, you know, getting a few slaps or I mean, it was more than that. Did you no harm? Is there a danger in saying that, though, Eddie, in that? You know, it it kind of lets certain people off the hook, especially in the week that's in it when all sorts of revelations are coming out that, you know, those we, we don't really know what the what the slaps did to you or or is it a case of I've got this all wrong that in fact, as bad as it was that that punishment was what drove you down the path of going, well, I've got to figure out something else here to excel at because it's certainly not going to be the books well you know i wasn't sure it was going to come up in this conversation but uh, you brought up the thing about um that i was almost i never thought i'd ever be able to say that i i i am so disappointed in my fellow irish people to think that what happened and the revelation in in Tume and other places throughout ireland i'm quite sure but it's it's behind us. I saw what the the Taoiseach has said and the apology, and I'm not sure what anyone can do about it, but uh, these are the most horrific things, and I really felt difficulty reading about it. Uh, and I didn't believe that it could happen in our own country, you know, 50 miles, 80 miles from the centre in the capital of Ireland, Dublin, uh, Tume, a place that I went to on a regular basis on the way through to either doing the Galway rally or Galway holidays or whatever it is. It just seems such a a, a, a quiet, refined uh, town. And to see the revelation and the numbers, the numbers were catastrophic. I just felt, oh, my God. And um, so from that point of view, I think it is 
worth pointing out that um, these situations have to be attacked. We can never, there was for too long, um, whether through uh, whatever religion you are, but uh, hiding behind the thing or maybe the, 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 the top man in, in, in the religion saving um, somebody further down the list, that can never happen again. We need a full exposure about what has happened. And in this issue, though, is so totally different to my position. Um, in Sing Street, I deserved every slap I got. There's really? no doubt about that. I don't think there was any occasion where I, I, I got a, um, the leather strap um, that I didn't deserve. I, but I did get punished and beaten more by fellow students than I ever did from the, from the brothers. <laughs> okay, um, okay, so, yeah. But it was a tough, it was a tough era, mm -hmm. you know. Um, the the, the mid-50s, mid, mid late 50s, whatever it was, um, it, it was a tough love, as we often say. And from that point of view, uh, it prepares you for the world. It makes you see what actually can happen and does happen. And do I regret it? I, I actually believe, and this is probably get castigated for saying this, I thought that in, in, in the, the format of the corporate punishment that I received, I thought it was entirely fair because I deserved every biff that I got. Um, either I didn't do my, my studies, I didn't do my homework, or I made a complete idiot, or I disrupted class, or I was trying to do something or just not pay attention. And, and all of those things... When you're in a classroom and you've got, uh, like, Sing Street would have had thousands of students at any one time, how you keep control of a class of 50 or 60 hooligans is beyond me. And I think that both the brothers and the, and, and the lay teachers, remarkable job. Mm. And um, so I would be the last person to criticise what happened to me at school because I deserved every, every piece of punishment I got. Well, you know, it's... It's fascinating to hear you say that, because as you say, it's it's not the thing that we're expected to say. And I know that you are obsessed with motivation and how people motivate others. It's something you've had to do every step of the way. I mean, you were obviously on the other side of things with Paul McGinley uh, working on the Ryder Cup and things. As your life went on, you you saw, though, that that kind of uh, fear the stick method of motivation obviously doesn't work for certain people, whether it's trying to get Eddie Irvine to get out of bed or someone else, uh, another driver who might need the arm around the shoulder. What what would you say was the key learning for you in motivating others? Well, I think initially it started with my infatuation about a word in the vocabulary, and the word is to believe. And I believe if you completely, I'm not talking about 99.5%, I'm talking about 100% believe in something, and, and you target it and you have it in your mind and it's a goal, and you're not going to be uh, pushed off that goal, and you're not going to get somebody to feed in any doubts or whatever it is. So long as you believe 100% about something and you are determined to see it through, generally you will see it through. It's it's a very strong word. Um, I love it because when we're talking about uh, motivation, there's people who believe or think that they can know that would be really nice and whatever it is. But then when it comes down to the belief factor, and it's 
Cleveland. Okay, you you said that you really believe that there's a. But I, I mean, when you say really believe, already that that word uh, really uh, it comes across as something that you know you almost believe. So I just want you to be sure. You need to find inside your mind 100% belief in what you're trying to do, whether it be a racing driver, whether it be a mechanic, whether it be a truck driver, whether it be any any job, or it doesn't have to be a job. It can be at home. It can be a good father, a good mother, a good anything. So, but you have to believe that you want to be the best, absolutely the best. And when you believe that you're absolutely the best, and when you really think about what needs to be done to be the best, you will be the best. That's it's, my philosophy. So, so that leads me to ask then, when you were in Jersey, which is where you first, you know, sit into a cart, like, was that a light bulb moment for you in that sense of belief? That you, you know, what, And what was the belief? Was the belief, I'm going to be the greatest cart r- racer ever, or was the belief that, did it take a while to realise that the actual belief was, I adore this, uh, this thing, this sport, and I want to be at the helm of it? Yeah, great question. But because I think when you're very young, um, you have so many things that go through your head. You've got... Uh, the last couple of girls that you met recently in the <laughs> pub and you've got a few points that you want to get down tonight and you're working in the Jersey Electricity Company during the day and you're working in the, in the Bristol Bar serving pulling pints at night just to give yourself a day off on the Sunday so as you could go karting. So I have to think carefully about what you say because for me to devote six days and nights of my living at that stage when there was probably discos to go to and other social kind of activities because, you know, it was a lot freer and a lot more compliant in, in those days to what was going, what you can do nowadays because, you know, you know political correctness has, has travelled a long way and we won't get into that particular aspect <laughs> of this conversation, hopefully. But, you know, I, I, I was brought up or I, I came through life in what was considered a much more uh, laid-back era. So for me to devote my time to go karting on a Sunday and forgo all the other activities that pals of mine and friends of mine that were there in Jersey at that time during the bank strike, they were all out living it up, yahooing and whatever um, they wanted to do. And, and good luck to them. That was their idea of, of getting um, steam off and and. I never saw it like that. I just was concentrated. I want to see, I want to be good at karting. So when I went and found that, you know, I was quite reasonable at this, and I said, oh, I'm going to do this when I get back and see if there are any um, karting clubs in, in Ireland. And, 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 and to my surprise, when I came back to Mullingar, there was a great karting club with guy, Dennis Shaw, uh, the local young um, uh, solicitor who had just come back from studying in, in Dublin. And we formed a little group of people and we used to go, Carting as often as we possibly could, providing there was enough money for us to go. But carting at that stage cost relatively nothing because um, you you would just put the cart on the top of a a, a roof rack and and a few gallons of fuel and away you went and you Mm -hmm. had a bit of fun. And and then it got much more serious, of course, and and the quality of the cars, the technology that went into the the, the engines and, uh, and then the mix between the engine. But that's where you learn. Because uh, why do most, uh, almost every Grand Prix driver or every Grand Prix winner and world champion in the last 30, 40 years, where does it all start from? Starts from karting because it's the ability to learn what 
and the movement of the car on slick tyres and karting had slicks. And, you know, then they got softer and softer and then people were able to drift with them. And then, you know, the power to weight ratio is quite simply staggering. It's almost that of a Formula One car because, you know, you've got a few tubes and a seat and you're sitting on it with this engine buzzing along at a ridiculous amount of speed. And, um, you know, it's how you go through the corners. You look at um, all the top drivers that I can see, and I'm just thinking about Lewis Hamilton at the moment because he, he's just broken all the records. <clears throat> he could not have been anything as good as he is now had he not had all of that time in Rye House with zip carts, <laughs> Comet engines and stuff. That he, he learned his trade at a very young age mm. and that is standing to him now, you know, to have won seven world titles, 35 years of age, all those Grand Prix wins. I mean, simply it's staggering when you can see what the kind of competition is there for him. Yeah. But he's dom- dominated the people whether you like him as a personality, we're not talking about people here. We're talking about the results and the inner belief that he had. And he's he got that from his father in terms of the drive and the commitment. Almost got to a stage where the father and the son almost fell out because dad, Anthony, didn't think that Lewis was, you know, pushing his heart. But he was the ultimate pushing father. Now, I didn't have that and probably grateful that I didn't have because I was allowed to do it. In fact, my parents were very against me karting in the first place. They thought thought there was no place in their household for somebody. So I had to keep my cart in in a friend's house, Michael Tunney. He kept my cart so as it didn't let on to my parents that I was away at weekends racing. And and, um, so I let a lie there for a while, but, you know, they kind of grew into it when they realised it was too late and it was... uh, well past the time of telling me what to do when I was in my <laughs> early 20s. Well, you know, we've had a bunch of jockeys on the show over the years, from A.P. McCoy to Ruby Walsh to Richard Hughes, and they all talk about you know, a similar thing that you're, you're referring to. They did pony racing. It would be their version of karting in that they learned the instincts. They learned, you know, how to manipulate the animal, go into corners and, you know, get uh, time the run. All of these things have come up so many times when I talk to these guys. But equally, when I talk to Richard Hughes, he talked about seeing the red light and that the nerves of steel that it takes to do this, because there has to be a certain amount of abandon. Correct. There has to be a little bit of you that lets go and doesn't think about if this horse or this cart stops dead with me in it, what will happen to me? And the second Richard said that you saw that red light, your career was toast when you smashed. 100%. Yeah, when you when you smashed your leg, and this this seems to be a turning point in the story as I can see it. I mean, we're talking about a time when actually being in a crash is very different to being in a crash today. Do you what's your what's your recollection of that crash itself and the impact it it had on you mentally? Did you did you see the red light after that? Look, uh, Richard, I know. And, and AP, I know them particularly well. I, I think the great thing about Irish sport is a lot of people all uh, come together. In fact, I've had a couple of two-year-olds with Richard uh, and I've enjoyed them and uh, we raced them every Monday night in Windsor. So um, the aspect of what you're talking about is similar. You're, you're absolutely true. Where you have got competition and, and speed or uh, getting over the line first is, is the crucial area. Then if you find, I mean, 
I saw the red light when I realized that I wasn't going to be the world champion that I had set out in my mind to be as a driver. But it, it took me somebody greater by far than me, uh, more intellect and more vision, but a man of relatively few words that I adored uh, and his counsel was so important to me that said to me, Eddie, we're all part of this team. I think I should tell you that it's Nicky Lauda's words. So, uh, Nicky, I was in the same Marlborough team. I mean, we're now moved on from the car team in a way. We can come back if you want to, but I'm just making the point that you're talking about this red light. And the red light um, came on when I realised that there was this young guy joined the team. In it was James Hunt, Emerson Fittipaldi, uh, John Watson, myself, and, and uh, James and Nicky. And this younger guy that I thought I was going to be quicker than him and be, would beat him was a French man with a very dodgy nose, uh, turned out to be Alain Prost. And I said, well, fine. And then I realised that I can't even stay in the same lap as this guy is so ridiculously quick. But to be fair, all the rest of the drivers felt the same way. He was <laughs> just phenomenally fast. And Nicky said to me, because... Nicky coming from Austria, he always felt Big Brother was Germany. And I, obviously, in the Marlborough team, was coming from Ireland. And Big Brother at that stage, the likes of James Hunt, although he was hugely personable and very welcoming into the into the fold, we had a negative attitude in Ireland. We were somewhat, we felt that foreign people were better than us. And, you know, that, that was something that, thankfully, has dissipated. It's no longer there. But we had a massive inferiority complex about we were very introverted, looking inwards. We didn't look out. We were an agricultural country. We, we, we missed the Industrial Revolution. We missed all sorts of different aspects. But thankfully, the new government and the way things Silicon Valley and welcoming people into Ireland in terms of manufacturing base, it was phenomenal change in their capacity. Back to Nicky Lado. Nicky said to me, look, Eddie, um, I've seen the